0: Welcome to this week's body slamming kids for votes episode <laughs> of Spin Cycle, where over the next hour we try and make sense of the week's media goings on. Coming to you from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, always was, always will be. I'm Jess Lily, and I'm so pleased to see my buddy aged Jono Najma Sambal, back in the studio this week.
1: Hey, how are hey, you? Yeah,
0: I'm very good. Charlie Lewis is Lewis is still lost in the wild wild west. Wandering around. (laughs) I feel so bad for him. (laughs) For crikey's election coverage. And we'll hopefully be back with us next Thursday if he manages to hitch a ride back this side of the country. But in thrilling news, we are instead joined by guest co host Ahmed Youssef digital producer for Age News Breakfast, formerly digital reporter SBS SBS's The Feed and longtime reporter on Heretia Lumumba's claims of racism against the Collingwood Football Club, which no doubt we'll talk to in a little bit. Welcome! Thank you. It's so exciting to have you in here.
2: It's exciting to be here. The last time I was um, in Triple R was like maybe three or four years ago.
1: Oh really? What oh, were wow. you doing?
2: I was having an interview about a, um, an essay I wrote.
1: Oh, Oh. what was the essay now? Come on, now I'm like...
2: (laughs) I'm intrigued too. It was called In the Belly of the Trojan Horse. It was sort of um, an essay around diversity and the way in which, um, whether it's literary um, institutions or media organisations, sometimes manipulate diversity in Um. their
0: favour. Listen. yeah we Look could just us. do uh, my, the whole show about that our
1: little minds have been blown <laughs> <laughs> <Like both laughs> Wow! Like that.
0: Uh, what's that record scratch <laughs> <laughs> we're changing the show um and we might have to have you back another time to talk all about that If you still have opinions, I'm sure you do. Um, In about 15 minutes, we'll be chatting with uh, Palestinian writer and academic Fahad Ali. But first, what has been happening in the media this week that has, you know, made you guys blink twice? Well,
2: I I guess, Nadra, we're talking off air about um, a new article written by Mustafa Rashwani for The Guardian.
1: Yeah, fantastic article. Um, I think that article... What was it about, actually? Might you explain it? Yeah,
2: well, it was sort of about um, the the essence of it was um, lots of Western Sydney Muslims talking about feeling forgotten by the Labor Party. Uh, Western Sydney, traditionally a a Labor stronghold, and it's been a big talking point in this election around a couple of seats. And um, some really interesting sort of findings around... um, one key sort of community leaders, but as well as just everyday people talking about the feeling of not being in front of mine, and I th- and, and whether that might impact their way they vote in this upcoming election on Saturday.
1: Mm. Yeah, like we Muslims know you'll vote for Labor and so we we don't have to really kind of, like, encourage you and, you know, you'll always be there, just kind of um, was the sentiment of I think one person, a couple of people in that article. But you had an interesting... Um, opinion online where you kind of related it back to um, some of the outer western suburbs and northern suburbs in Melbourne. What was your opinion on that?
2: Well, I I think it's more of a sort of – it could be a thing that develops in Melbourne um, as well. So we've got – just look at the seat of of Corwell, very safe labour, has probably – it's probably one of the safest seats in in the country um, with a very – young demographic now emerging and some of the sentiments in the article Mustafa um, had written was parents would vote Labor and now their their children are changing Mm. and we're seeing that same demographic start to lift. Um, So it will be interesting because a lot of the time from conversations that I've had with people who live in those areas, it's the same feeling of forgotten and we're seeing the coalition strategy being really about the the suburbs. It's mm. been very like um, Scott Morrison. That's
0: interesting, has, isn't it? Yeah,
2: Scott Morrison's been to Parramatta a number of times. Mm. Um, visited a number of Western Sydney. I seats. Think something like
1: five times. I heard. Yeah, yeah. I being think it reported. was five. Yeah, yeah. He
2: went to aid Prayer in Parramatta as well. Uh, yeah. So I think it's it's really interesting um, to see how the political parties start to engage in these communities, and and I think especially as those communities get older, how they become. More important.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I'd be interested to see what happens with that, because I don't know if I maybe have missed some of the reporting on it, but I I just find it really kind of hard to believe that Scott Morrison is going to get anything from people in predominantly Muslim suburbs because of, you know, kind of the Toke saga. You know, that was pretty like...
0: Well, yeah, but I think if you combine that um, presence in, Mm. in the community with the just that insistent message on economic, um, strength and, you know, all, all of that sort of stuff, maybe. I mean, what do you think, what do you think about just the representation overall in the media of, um, you know, issues relating to diverse communities and to Muslim communities? Has, has the media been representative or do you think that they've sort of also forgotten a little bit?
1: Well, I don't know. I'm 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 always in two minds about this because Muslims aren't a majority in this country, so I think over-reporting on Muslims is pretty weird in general. Yeah. Um, but when there's kind of like shit reporting, it's pretty. It's another fucking issue, isn't it?
2: <laughs> wow, oh, we're, we're dropping f bombs now. Is, 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 I did not. I didn't know that's how the spin cycle rolled. Uh, oh, I, I, I guess I think it, just,
1: it was a, just things it up just a slipped out. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, <laughs> forgot I was on air for a second, didn't I? But, oh. but, yeah, like just to get back to that point, I think like what we're seeing kind of like some of the reporting out in, um, you know, marginal electorates that mm. have kind of like a diverse, if you would call it, um, culturally diverse um You know communities communities like Chisholm that have like a large number of Chinese Australians, and what you're seeing in Goldstein that have a lot of um, Jewish Australians. I think some of that, like some of the reporting on that, is could be potentially problematic. So when I guess Muslim Australians aren't in the news for me, it it feels like probably a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, flying under the radar.
2: No, no. I think it's. um, I think the way the media reports on Muslims and and other communities needs to be a lot more sophisticated. Yeah. I think, often it's using shortcuts like community leaders who may or may not be representing their communities. Mm. Um, and there's,
1: yeah, there's a lack of due diligence that's done that feels like who is this being written for because it doesn't feel like it's being written for the community because a lot of community me- um, members immediately can look at that and poke holes in that story. So for me, yeah, sorry to cut you off, but, yeah. you know, I think that's probably the first thing that comes to mind, yeah.
2: and And I think the way in which... Um, these communities get older and more politically savvy and also their need for sort of um, traditional media now starts to not really matter as much because you've got mm. things like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, um, YouTube, et cetera, where they don't actually need to be as present. And Because if, if someone puts out a tweet and they're a big personality in, in any community or a Facebook post or Instagram live or whatever it might be that will then get picked up eventually.
0: So the mainstream m- news isn't necessarily the the sort of the biggest way to communicate with a lot of communities anyway the media's diversified so much.
2: Well, I guess it's also a thing where you need to be un- you need to understand where those communities are as well. Yeah. And it's not just this homogenous space where they'll all be in that space as well. I think it's what are you actually doing to to engage them but also engage them in a very interesting and more I'll give you an example. There was a really good story today that two of my colleagues done, Meghna Bali and Ariel Bogle, about um, both Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese unknowingly putting on a ultra-national. Ah, yes, the Hin- Hindi Yeah, scarf, the Hindu yeah. national scarf, uh, scarf sorry, um, that had some very sort of ultra-national symbolism mm. um, but didn't really understand what they were putting on, right? So, mm. it's, so it's about sort of how do we engage with these communities and understand the, the sort of, one, the sort of geopolitical issues that exist and how that might – like I, I, I'm i curious about how Mus- Indian Muslims would feel about um, Anthony Albanese and Scott Morrison wearing that um, unknowingly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that it's it's these things, right? It's about sort of both uh, the, the capital P politics but also the sort of media class understanding those issues because I don't mm. think they do very well.
0: And uh- – and getting deep on – like, under getting the right people to – rather than just those surface photo ops.
1: Yeah, and I've just, I think that the, the problem is that it's either that they view these communities as being quite simple and they can report on it from a very specific angle or they see it as far too complex and they don't want to touch it with a ten-foot pole. Mm. So it's like the extremes of both ends and – you know, you need to be obviously somewhere in the middle, but I think it's just do your job better, especially politicians. Like just do your due diligence mm. and like especially in terms of reporters as well, like they're pretty slammed and like understaffed <laughs> and under-resourced. So I think um No, just, I think – no, I don't like that just, excuse. Yeah. Because
2: yeah. media institutions can create a, a structure where there's an ability to do that better. Yeah. Um, and it's just about prioritising that, especially when you are in a country – Uh, Australia likes to call themselves the best, the greatest multicultural country in the world, well, then our media class need to do better in that sense as well. So it's, it's about making sure those things are front of mind and not a secondary. Um, when you're doing a story about, a, I don't know, let's say an organisation, and in, um, an, an NGO releases a racism report that finds X, Y and Z is happening. Now you're hunting hardly, like really hard to find a case study from that community because you have no networks whatsoever yeah. in those spaces. You
0: haven't developed the relationships
2: so it, so over g- time. So again, it's, it, it's, it's doing a due diligence and not thinking this is like, oh, we're just going to go now and not think about what happens afterwards, keeping that loop open and making sure that constant sort of engagement. And also – Critical engagement because it's not as if these communities are all perfect. You mm-hmm. have to scrutinise mm-hmm. them. We can't think that every story that comes out of um, diverse communities has to be a puff piece. Ali, gra- um, Ali fled Syria. Now he's graduating year twelve. Like, sorry, <laughs> like that's not a good story.
0: Yeah, yeah. What What have you been reporting on for ABC during the election campaign, Ahmed?
2: Well, I've been doing um, – so we did a story sort of looking back on the impact of sports rorts,
0: mm-hmm. um,
2: particularly focusing on outer suburban communities in Melbourne, Sydney and Perth um, through places that lost funding and sort of what is the, the everyday for community members in those spaces, whether it's having to climb a fence to play basketball or traveling oh, two hours to to go to a, to the other gym. No, sorry, traveling hours to go to another gym, or um, having because to, the
0: funding went because, to the liberal seat or whatever it was.
2: Yeah, and, and, and then also like a Perth, um, Perth, one of Perth's most multicultural and and sort of fastest growing areas, not getting the park that they had initially wanted, um, and another place in Western Sydney seeing. Um, Pools close. Thankfully, the Parramatta Pool will be built, but also just a sense of seeing other pools close in the area. Mm. Greenacre Pool closed, Villa Woods Pool closed. So I think it's sort of, yeah, those real world impacts mm. of people on the face of it are wow. They, wow. they don't have sports facilities, but it's, it's a lot deeper than that.
1: Imagine the outrage if a pool had closed in Eastern Sydney. <laughs> like, my if it's God. Roy, if
0: Fitzroy Pool had closed. Oh, God, that'd be riots. Uh, do they link, do those communities, like, do they see that direct link with Sports Raw? Or so they just feel like they're not, they're just neglected? Some do. Polit- well, some,
2: yeah. Well, some do. And, and then also the feeling of neglect. Mm. Um, and people might say that this is a local government or state government issue, but if, you're a person who's not so politically engaged, and are busy at work, and you want your kids to do something afterwards. Well, is that is that going to be a front of mind, particularly after there was a federal grant that mm. could have went your way as well? Um, other things we've worked on was sort of looking at the cost of living crisis and yeah. um, seeing a number of. Um, working poor and just people having to go to community centres for food relief um, um, in Western Sydney as well as in Melbourne's out of north, um, and really seeing that real world impact um, of this like this, this cost of living crisis isn't an isn't, isn't abstract, it's material. Yeah. People not having enough food to just feed their family. Triple R.
0: You're tuned to Spin Cycle
2: on
1: Triple R. I'm really excited to introduce this next guest. Um, Fahad Ali is a Palestinian community advocate and organiser. He is a writer and academic and also one of the co-organisers of the Sydney Festival Boycott Campaign and the Queer Solidarity Film Festival. Fahad is also a molecular biologist and science educator and does not stop welcome holy heck
3: (laughs) hey thank you so much
1: well thank you so much for coming on um i just kind of have been a little bit you know i think the whole world has been so shocked by shireen abu akla's death um at the hands of the israeli um, defense Force, and um, it was quite shocking to see an icon um, who brought so many stories to the forefront about the Palestinian situation, the occupation of um, Palestine. And um, I just wanted to ask you, how did you kind of, how did you take that news?
3: Yeah, um, it was, you know, completely confronting, mm. um, and you know. I think it really brought into focus this idea that it doesn't matter who you are. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter how, um, how big of a profile you are. It doesn't even matter mm-hmm. if you're in a press jacket, if you are a Palestinian, you are considered a legitimate target. And that, that is truly, I mean, the violence that, um, you know, that killed is no different from the violence, that, you know, Palestinians, you know, have to contend with on a daily basis. Um, it was just such a reminder of that fact.
1: Mm. And so I guess like as, you know, one of the co-organisers of the Sydney Festival boycott, um, there has been so, so many developments in, um, in in regards to the BDS movement, there have been, you know, anti-BDS laws um, being put into parliament. Even on the um, day that Shireen Abu Akhla was murdered, um, you had Prince Charles um, give in, like, an address that they were going to have anti-BDS laws in the UK. Um, How do you kind of, like, begin to figure out the path forward to try and mobilise against this kind of movement?
3: So, I mean, the idea that people shouldn't have the right to engage in legitimate protest movements, for example, a a boycott, a consumer boycott, for example, or a divestment campaign, that's antithetical to civil society. Um, It's a violation of our civil liberties, and it goes well beyond Palestine. For Mm. example, if I wanted to organize a campaign boycotting fossil fuel companies, you know, what is to suggest that that won't, that same kind of criminalization of protest won't be applied to me so which is uh, happening the, I, which is happening yeah. for sure um you know w- wherever anti-bds laws have been introduced in many places in uh, the united states and they have been introduced already uh very frequently they're struck down as unconstitutional we're in a uh, you know a unique situation here in this country because we don't have those sort of constitutional protections for freedom of speech. Um, But at the same time, I think that just makes it more, uh, it brings into, um, or I should say, it just makes it more important for us to recognise and to build links with other campaigns and to recognise the intersectionality of our movements because it's a question of touch one, touch all. If they take away our right to engage in BDS action, you know, that is necessarily going to be weaponized against everyone else. So we need to stand together to make sure that we have the right to protest whatever it is, whether it's Israel's violence, whether it's fossil fuel companies, and whether it's violence against First Nations in this colony.
0: Mm. Fahad, thanks so much for joining us. It's Jess here. Um, one thing that came out of the Sydney boycott was um, how, uh, let's say, sensitive the Australian media is in terms of telling stories from a, a Palestinian perspective. Um, have you uh, experienced that again since the death of Shireen?
3: Absolutely. Um, look, I've there have been times at which I've sent in you know, op-eds or pitches or articles, or I've tried to get in contact with journalists only to be stonewalled. And it's it's remarkable because um, in the context of this federal election, um, you know, there's been a, a quite a lot of conversation about, um, you know, these independents being anti-Israel. So Allegra Spender, Joe Dyer, mm. um, you know, all this bizarre weaponization of anti-Semitism and... Um, it, it, it's, it's truly toxic. And, you know, a, a liberal senator is on the record in, you know, the Senate of this country accusing Allegra Spender of being an anti Israel kind of warrior because one of her campaign supporters, like, retweeted me. Uh, <laughs> so, oh we're, we're in this kind of weird situation where that can happen. But then I don't have a right of reply. I don't Mm. have any way to tell my own story or give my own opinion or speak for myself beyond my own social media platforms. Mm. Because although I have something that's valid to say, and I'm not not a representative of the Palestinian people, I'm just myself, but Palestinians by and large find it very difficult to get things into the press. And I, I do think that it's a question of journalists, editors being afraid of pushback, And you only need to go back a few years to when the Sydney Morning Herald had a crossword where one of the crossword clues was the Holy Land and the answer was Palestine to see the kind of, you know, hysterical response that got from the Zionist lobby, you know, demanding an apology, demanding, you know, that whoever wrote this crossword be, you know, disciplined or fired Mm. or... People are afraid. People in the media space are afraid of being subject to that kind of intimidation, to those complaints, and to having their life made very hard and being accused of being anti-Israel or anti-Semitic. And the most, I think, the, the, the sad thing about this is, in the context of the events of the past week, with the death of Shireen Abu Akleh, a you know a fierce, courageous journalist, journalist yeah. who, you know, was not afraid of power, who is not afraid of stepping into you know, a conflict zone with Israeli soldiers surrounding her, who is not afraid of any of that, that is a huge, I think, indictment on the cowardice, I would say, of our press establishment where, you know... She's deserving of
0: press solidarity. Mm.
3: She's deserving of press solidarity, but it also should remind them that they should grow a spine.
1: Mm. Um, I'm very interested in the kind of the process of, you know, putting yourself out there constantly, you know, having these relationships with editors. What really surprised me, and I just want to take it back to this moment, when Amnesty International had a damning report um, that basically just found that Israel had unequivocally um, basically committing apartheid um, in Palestine, I saw nothing. Mm -hmm. in Australian media, and I was absolutely floored by that. What was your opinion on that, Fahad? And at that time, did you try to pitch?
3: I can confirm that the press was aware in advance of the news of the amnesty report because they would have received embargoed copies of the report they would have received an executive summary they would have received an embargoed press release uh from amnesty and they also would have received when the report was released a press release from many palestinian organizations Uh, we tried to pitch um we didn't get really all that much of a response um and you know, I, I do recall when it happened. It wasn't until um, the the nightly news, I think it was the seven seven o'clock news on the ABC. I saw a a, a brief, you know, two minute just soundbite about it. But um, if you compare that to sort of the Amnesty or Human Rights Watch and their findings on other conflicts, and one one that comes to mind is um, the persecution the persecution of Uyghur people by by mm-hmm. China. Um, there was quite a large, um, a, t- a large amount of attention given to that by the press. It seems as though Palestine is the one exception. Journalists will not go near. Mm. And that is, you know, this should not be based on, you know, people's fear of speaking truth to power. It should be based on what are the facts? You know, is this a story? Is this in the public interest? Mm. And increasingly we're seeing journalists fail to make those basic determinations about, you know, the quality of their journalism.
2: There's been um, uh, is my mic not on? Yeah. Oh, sorry. (laughs) You can (laughs) hear yourself. You're just a soft
0: speaker. I am.
2: Thank you, Jess. Uh, um, There's been a lot of critique about sort of the language used by a number of media organisations, and particularly the term "clash." Can Mm. you sort of talk to me about that?
0: Great point.
3: Yeah. So language always reflects biases, Um, and so when we're talking about, you know clashes or we're talking about um someone was someone died as opposed to someone was killed so there's a lot of passive language being used that sort of takes away the the, the notion that an action was actually committed by someone um so and Kat it also suggests
0: that she had a weapon doesn't it
3: it mm. does It, it indeed there it was does. some kind of but, fight i mean as an israeli military spokesperson said uh these Palestinian journalists are armed, and when when asked to clarify, he said, "Oh, they're armed with cameras." I mean, like that wow. just tells you all you need to know. But um, you know, whether it's Israel bombarding the Gaza Strip or whether it's you know attacks on um, peaceful protesters or any number of things, this is described as a conflict. It's not a conflict. It's a it's a it's a settler colonial regime that inflicts apartheid upon uh, you know largely. Defenseless population. It's not clashes. It's violence being committed by an occupying power against an occupied people. It's not, you know, it, it, and that language is deliberate. And, you know, I, these press organizations know because they're called out on it constantly when we see Shireen Abu Akleh died, mm. as opposed to Shireen Abu Akleh was killed by Israeli fire.
2: Mm.
3: Like, that tells you a lot about the implicit biases and the fear. Of these press organisations for speaking the truth,
0: and mm. when we saw the um, funeral, um, Shireen's funeral, the some of the images that came out um, on Al Jazeera when they were broadcasting it live mm. were absolutely shocking, horrendous, uh, horrendous, mm. and and the the fact that I guess um, the Israeli forces were emboldened to attack a funeral procession, procession in that way. Um. De- sort of talks to what what you've been talking about in terms of th- the world almost turning its back in a way on a problem that's too hard or something. I mean, how how does it feel when you see something like that in terms of the and then compare it to the international response for her?
3: I mean, it's it's genuinely heartbreaking. Um, and and it's not just the funeral. I recall. Uh, Earlier this year, um, there, uh, as the as the Russian invasion of Ukraine was ongoing, um, there was Mm -hmm. quite a lot of images off Gaza um, being shared that were misattributed to sort of like you know Russia's actions in Ukraine, Mm -hmm. Um, and 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 people took those very very seriously. It was like there'd Mm -hmm. be a caption, there'd be a video of Ahed Tamimi, you know, a a young Palestinian activist, and it would say. Ukrainian girl fights it, Russian soldier. It's like, no, that's a Palestinian girl fighting an Israeli soldier. But isn't um, it
0: interesting? The response is positive when when they think it's a re- Ukrainian girl. It's yeah. almost like a test in um, psychology, putting that yeah. same, exactly the same image with a different context and seeing the different I'm, response.
3: Absolutely, and I'm not. I'm not trying to claim that you know it's a. It's a question of either or. I mean, we we should be able to feel solidarity strongly about multiple of different course, things. Yeah. Um, however, when our people have been under occupation for seven decades, more than seven decades, when these things happen constantly, year after year, ceaselessly, the violence has never, for once, ceased. Mm. what are we going to do? Like, And, you know, when we, we we go to the world, we try to speak our truth, we try to narrate our dispossession, we try to tell our stories, and people sort of shrug and say, well, this is too hard for me to deal with, or, you know, it's, it's too complicated, or, oh, I don't want to get involved in that. People need to, you know, find some courage in the light of, you know, what is literally apartheid. Um, and it, it, it shocks me that so many people can't find that mould, you know, fibre.
1: Yeah. I just want to go to, because when we do speak about Palestine, we um, it's very hard to speak about. I know it must be incredibly hard for you, Fahad. For thank you so much for coming on. Um, but I want to go to one of the real successes of, um, you know, some of the campaigns that you've been behind. You know, the Sydney Festival boycott mm. was really, really something to behold how was it possible
3: i genuinely think that that campaign would not have happened without sort of years of work that had gone into it prior it sort of didn't emerge all of a sudden the palestinian you know community has been Active, trying to speak our truth, trying to build connections within the community, and that set, set the groundwork for this campaign. but one of the most important things I think was that we didn't go in with a prescriptive focus, we didn't go in telling artists what to do mm. um, or you know we didn't we didn't demand people boycott the festival. we actually built a coalition and we didn't draw a line between we are the activists, you are the artists. You know, Mm. I, myself, am a writer. There are many people involved in the organizing group who themselves were performing artists or who were already billed to be a part of Sydney Festival before the sponsorship was announced. So we built a community around it, and I think that whole concept of building a community around a campaign was what gave us that kind of forward propulsion. Um, And, you know, that just, the other phenomenal thing about that is that the campaign, it doesn't end there because we built something up. We now have all these fantastic comrades who are you know, willing to be a part of the journey going forward and it's not just about Palestine, it's about you know, as I said, if it's, if it's um, a fossil fuel industry, getting involved in stuff, you know, we can mobilise if it's First Nations justice that we need to mobilise for, we've got that community structure that's being built and we're, we're still inviting people to be a part of that. Mm.
0: Thank you so much for joining us this evening, Fahad. We've been talking about... Um, the Palestine and and how the media seems to very much grapple with the ongoing um, apartheid situation there uh, with Palestinian writer and academic Fahad Ali. Thank you so much for joining Spin Cycle this evening.
3: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Now, Haretia Lumumba popped up again. Lumumba? Yep. Yep. Popped up again this week. I shouldn't say that. He's been around for a very long time and has... um, you know,
1: but it 's come back again into the conversation
0: well he's fought an incredible and what I could imagine is a pretty lonely battle against Collingwood, just trying to have it accepted that um while he was at the cl- club, um, he was the subject of some really racist treatment um, and this week um he's pretty much said he 's done he doesn 't want to. Um, have to go through this anymore. It's been years and years um, of having to kind of talk about it and deal with it without him feeling like um, he's been listened to. But there was a little bit of sting in the the tail. And Ahmed, you've covered this story a lot. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened this week and a bit about the journey that Heretia has been been on with the club and with the media, really?
2: Well, um, sort of what happened this week was... Um, Heretier releasing some of the recordings that he said he had um, about the club wanting him to be traded and him not wanting to go. Um, and I guess the thing about Heretia Lumumba's story has been a really interesting one because it's not new, like you said. Um, he had talked about all these issues back in 2017 and with a, um, had the support of four former teammates sort of corroborating that his nickname was Chimp. And then he does an interview with the project. Um, it doesn't go so well, and then that's blackout silence afterwards. Mm. Why
1: didn't it go like Why didn't it go well again?
0: Well, uh, he was accused of making it up. Was not yeah, he, by, pretty much. Yeah,
2: and and um, I don't think in the interview, uh, Walid or other sort of um, project, sort of analysts, sort of took the the four. Teammates, uh, seriously? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember this. So um, you gaslight
1: a black man, right? Okay. That's old story.
2: <laughs> and, and and sort of what happened since was sort of um, that famous Nathan Buckley um, press conference where he says, I hope H is doing all right. I know he's going through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people would pick up on that, that sort of, because Hedeti has been really open about his m- mental health and his struggles during his time at Collingwood, um that was kind of weaponized, mm. um, and it became this he became this figure of like the angry black man mm. and, and and also it's interesting, so he wasn't necessarily and he doesn't need to be, be as well he wasn't the sort of the the right kind of victim mm. in a lot of ways he was a bit erratic, which he has every right to be mm. um, he he spoke up when he when he wanted he to he was
0: angry and uh, understandably Who can blame so. so. No no but, but yeah, that's yeah, that's that's,
2: ex, that's exactly the point. Mm. Um he didn't fit the narrative around the right kind of victim. Oh, but do mm. we
1: ever? Like I don't know. I feel like even if he were to like um I know that you don't mean that but like just hearing that just makes me go like my god like
2: No no no. Looking I, uh,
1: back on it I'm just like
2: Well the the, the the reason I say that is because he didn't have any segments of the media on his side, yeah. yeah.
0: Mm. Well, so that's he,
2: the pro- That that's, that really is the thing because it was it, it was really interesting because I remember that 2017 time because mm. um, I had known Heretia before that and he had told me about the nickname years ago, like back in like 2015, uh, 2014 when he had left Collingwood and he was telling me about this documentary he's making and and I sort of was seeing him go through this sort of transformation. Um, he was trying to connect with a lot of um, African diaspora communities here. Mm. I saw him do this really emotional spoken word piece, actually at Bar also. Um, wow. And and it was seemingly like he was trying to reconnect to something, particularly after that time of leaving Collingwood. Mm. Um, and then you were telling me about this documentary he's really excited about, that he's filming, that he's going to tell his truth. And then it comes out. The four players speak and support him. Um, talk about the, the nickname "Chimp." He does one interview that um, seemingly discredits him, and then he leaves the country for however many years. He's been back once, mm. and then COVID. He, he's been he's been really sort of struggling with that because his mum lives in Perth. Um, and, and where
1: is he now in LA? He's
2: in Los Angeles. Yeah. And and another reason why he sort of wants this saga to end is. His his wife's um on uh, she's pregnant and they're going to have their second baby very shortly. So I think he just wants to hit the end button on this mm. situation. And I and I also think it's interesting because when when I did my story in twenty twenty during the Black Lives Matter protests, um, I spoke to the first two white Australian footballers that he'd played with. That corroborated the nickname, mm. and I don't know whether that played a part in the reemergence because. Um, you had Leon Davis, Chris Egan, Andrew Cracker, and share McNamara, share McNamara being um, the white, the white American um, who 'd come to play in the AFL so I do wonder had there, had those two footballers spoke then whether there 'd be more belief around Heretier.
0: I mean, it also is football culture, right? And this was before the – he must have felt some vindication after the Do Better report and, you know, Eddie Maguire couldn't hide any longer and his response just – Well, can I say something about the Do Better report
2: Um, that I don't think a lot of people realise at the time and I sort of elaborated on Twitter. So they released the Do Better report on the deadline of my story. (laughs) So I I gave them a deadline. um, Wow. On the, it was the twenty second of June. It was a Monday. Um, that was my deadline. Cut of business.
0: So they knew you were writing about
2: it. And I told them that that Brent McAfee and Crystals had gone on record with these allegations. And I was waiting for a response. I called. I sent detailed list of of questions. And then at like seven o'clock, they released the statement about. Um, this on on their website, and then now I've got to redo my article to include that statement. But then we go out on on Wednesday, which actually worked out really well because it timed for their press conference. So mm. the and what que- a
0: press conference
2: it was! Yeah, the first question was my was about my story, and sort of, but I, I, yeah, I do I do find it I do find it interesting how still there is elements of people saying, why doesn't he? Just forget about it.
0: But the thing is, I mean, you know, the dominoes fell really in for calling against Collingwood eventually, but they were pulled, p- kicking and screaming, and that and that's what happened in 2017. They closed ranks; everyone closed ranks mm-hmm. about you know around a, a, a particular culture in a particular football club, yeah. and you know, perhaps if your story wasn't coming out, the Do Better report wouldn't have come out that mm-hmm. way, you know, and so. In the end, what Heretia put in practice was or or put in motion was an incredible, um, you know, forced a change in culture, which, you know, it's questionable whether that change has happened properly, but whatever. Well, the the players wouldn't have come on record without Heretia asking them. Yeah. That's the reality.
1: But even just to go back to kind of like some of that criticism um, from people saying, you know, why doesn't he just forget about it and get
2: over it? Uh, they, these they, people
1: are white, right? That are saying this. Well,
2: that, I I don't like, take that criticism as valid. Yeah, I
1: know, but it's like, okay, yeah, they, we don't want to hear from you right now, and um, yes. Yeah, so, well, uh, uh, uh would, like obviously, like it's just so weird for people to say, let just forget about racism. Okay, come on, be black then. Come give it a try for a day. So, but
2: also, it's, it's, just, <laughs> it's this literally it's outrageous. Mm-hmm. But it's also this idea, right? You 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 work at a place for close to a decade and um and also in this the piece he sort of uh back in 2020 really sort of detailed when it happened they were on a they were on a night out they're back at the cab some of them had a lot of drinks and he had a bald head and so they start slapping his head mm. and they start calling him chimp and that's fuck but also it it, yeah. it, it, it b- but, but imagine that being your nickname every day at training, every after every game, um, and that's not even to talk about some of the other issues he had and has sort of talked about around the culture. He Sto- talks about having to take on this sort of pseudo-leadership role in the club as their cultural, ad- like cultural diversity sort of inclusion lead mm. sort of thing, um, and that's a heavy weight to bear on a very young man. Because he's still in his 30s now. Imagine then.
0: Yeah, and especially when your experience of the culture of the club is anything but inclusive or, you know, um, in any way accepting of diversity. That's just in, it's just horrendous. You know, and especially when you talked about how you saw him doing a really emotional stand-up piece and he was trying to reconnect with a community, the whole point of a football club is that it's supposed to be a community. It's supposed to be something that you feel belonging to and part of and trusting and a safe space because you are bonding with your teammates to be singled out like that. It must've been horrendous for a young man.
1: And I I will also add though, it's like it's, it's such a big topic and it's such a big issue. Like anti-blackness is global and it's something mm. that people globally mobilise around. Mm. So, to see your you know your peers who are also black who who you know adam goods um you see what happened with Andrew yeah. Simons, who recently passed rest in peace um you know when you when you constantly are surrounded by that kind of disgusting level of anti blackness like I'm sorry, you don't get over that mm.
2: well it's traumatic and and he's talked about the trauma it's given him um and and also we shouldn't forget the... Russell Jackson did an amazing piece where he looked back on so many of the stories, so many of the headlines. Mm. People were angry about him changing his name. People were angry about him just asking the AFL multicultural um, lead whether he would be able to have a chat with Barack Obama because it was a big deal that this black man became president. Mm. His father was from Africa and left he had a white mother. He uh, his, his father was from Africa, mm. died. It's, it's it's sort of a thing where it wasn't – it became trivialized even though it meant so much for him. Mm. And it wasn't the story about like, look at this, um, Herete Lumumba or at that point Harry O'Brien wants to connect with the US president. That's a really cool thing. Mm. L- a lot of people talk about sports people not being interested in politics.
0: Um, and – uh, so he was only—it was only okay. He was only acceptable if he sort of um, suppressed his blackness. Well,
2: uh,
1: or well, just the, accepted ex- racism. Yeah, accepted ex- racism. Yeah, accepted okay. casual racism, and just took it on the chin because you know you're in the you're like, you're you're in the room now. You know you're part, you're one of us, mate. You know we're only joking around. Like I think just there's a huge expectation, an unfair, disgusting kind of burden. On people to just toe that line,
2: mm. and and wow. I, and I also think it's this this element of just be happy you're there because it, it was also yeah. a thing I, I I can imagine when he 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 came as the as Collingwood's last draft pick he wasn't he wasn't the star um from the very beginning he he had a really amazing career he was actually one of my favorite players when i was growing up uh so it was really this this whole this whole i'm actually him a Collingwood supporter oh, so wow. this this, this so he
0: was then becoming his uh, mate and reporting on it must uh, have been a bit
2: of so a it was a really interesting full circle moment right <laughs> yeah. um cuz i remember watching the it was the 2011 grand final when Collingwood won um, against St Kilda in those two games. Mm. So it's, it's been a really interesting full circle moment. Um,
1: How many times do you guys talk? Do you guys talk, you know, once a week? Like what's the uh, relationship? Naj <laughs> is, is getting under his like, okay. No, now I'm just like there's two minutes left. How's he doing? <laughs>
2: oh, he's doing really well. Like, yeah. like I said before. Hereti is just like he's living his life. He's created a community in L.A. Um, he, he's um, he's he got a lovely wife. Um, he's got a young son. He's going to have another child in the next couple of, I think, very, very soon. Um and he's he's moved on the, the point that
0: well he moved on except he just needed to have one last crack at Nathan Buckley, which I respect massively Well, he- oh, just <laughs> settled, just exposed the truth and, and like uh, yeah
2: he's he's moved on, he's happy, and i'm 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 just very glad for him
0: I would love to be able to speak about this longer, as I imagine we all would, and you have to come back. Ahmed, it's been so great having you as our co-host. Um, we won't tell Char- Charlie how much it was, how good it was, because he'll be Charlie back Charlie may week. be listening. Shout out, <laughs> Charlie. He does better than Charlie. That's the fact. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be real. You heard it here first. <laughs> and thank you so much to Fahad Ali as well for talking, uh, to joining us to talk about Palestine. Stick around for Neil and the Australian Mood Spin Cycle is back with a full house, uh, hopefully next Thursday, 7pm. See you then.
3: And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform,
1: and you can follow us on Twitter at Nad at Lily Juice,
3: and at The Shuffle Diary.
1: You can also listen in at rrr.org.au
0: via on demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this.